Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Crises are the stress tests that instantly expose flaws but also strengths. This is particularly evident in the UK during this pandemic. We have done some things incredibly well and other things disastrously badly. It is at times like these that we understand what we are really made of. And if we are to look for lessons, for ways forward and for several linings, which it is incumbent on us to do, otherwise the suffering will have been for nothing, that is where we start. Who better to help me through this difficult subject than a man, quite literally, obsessed with what everything is made of? Richard Jones is a professor of materials, physics and innovation policy at Manchester, a fellow of the Royal Society since 2006, and an author of several books about various aspects of materials, physics and nanotechnology. He is a physicist who has become more and more interested in wider questions about science and technology in our society, and especially how new discoveries in science sometimes lead to economic growth and better jobs, and how sometimes they don't. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Richard, I understand you introduced students to the subject of science of materials with a lecture on why rubber is elastic. Can you dumb it down for non-physics students like me? Oh, that's a fascinating subject. Uh, Rubber's an everyday material. You see it every day. And it's a real expression of the importance of entropy. Rubber is elastic because if you pull it there are fewer ways in which the molecules can arrange themselves than if you let it relax again so it's that tendency of things to become more disordered that makes a stretched rubber band where you've (laughs) forced order onto the molecule by stretching it to uh, when you let it go it wants to get more disordered so the molecules all coil up and the rubber springs back so it's a it's it's a marvelous and very simple example of the, the the power of entropy and quite a good metaphor for how crises tend to force a commonality of purpose. Richard, give us some examples of innovations that most people would not instantly think of as materials related, but that actually have to do something with it, the coating or the, the, uh, the fabric used. There's all kinds of examples in everyday life, actually, from quite uh, mundane seeming things. I mean, a great example that I enjoy telling my students about is uh, a two-in-one shampoo, which uh, combines shampoo and a conditioner. And if you think about it, it's one of these things that actually it's uh, it seems like it's a very simple product. Get it in every supermarket. But mm. it's kind of weird that you've got a single product that both cleans your hair and puts something on it. Actually, quite a lot of quite neat science goes into that thing about how you make a product that simultaneously can clean your hair and and that uses uh, surfactants, but also will leave a coating on it. So it's a very simple example, but it captures some of the cleverness that you can do with complex materials that respond to uh, different stimuli. That's really fascinating. I had never understood how something can degrease and also effectively grease your hair at the same time. But basically, it's designed at a molecular level to deliver those two things at different times, is it? Yeah, absolutely. So you've got a bunch of clever people in Unilever or in Procter & Gamble who've worked out how you can get a material that will release particular types of molecule at the right time. It sounds like a very simple application, but it's quite a neat trick. And, uh, you know, we see actually much more sophisticated examples of that, for example, in the COVID vaccine, in the the BioNTech and uh, Moderna mRNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. 
where you do have this problem of you've got RNA. If you have free RNA floating around in your body, it doesn't last very long because your body assumes that a piece of free RNA belongs to a, a virus and will mop it up and destroy it. Right, right. So an mRNA vaccine essentially is a system where you wrap up the RNA molecules in this kind of little greasy shell. You manage to inject it into in, into your body. And when it sees one of your cells, it both manages to disrupt the cell membrane enough to get into the cell membrane. And then the little container that contains the RNA will then break up and release the RNA inside the cell to do its work of uh, persuading the, uh, the, the cell to make the protein, which is essentially the antigen that you need to generate immunity towards. So it's basically the packaging that ensures the right thing is delivered to the right place and then breaks down, as it were. Yeah, exactly. It's that packaging that protects it from the body uh, until it gets to where it's needed, gets mm. it into the cell in the right way, and then releases its contents to do to, to do the job. So it's a it's a beautiful piece of kind of soft nanotechnology. I read a few articles on, on that on your blog, which listeners you can find on www.softmachines.org, and I would highly recommend it because it has a breadth of subjects, but all of them share a directness which sometimes is lacking in scientific blogs. So I commend it very highly. To just widen the focus, what is the UK's place in scientific research post-Brexit? We heard a lot before the referendum and then before the deal was struck. We we had a lot of concern from the scientific community about how this would impact research and innovation. What do you think has been the impact and how do we go forward? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the impact has been substantial. I think, you know, science is a very international activity. I would say there's immediate impacts and a kind of more general worry. I mean, the immediate impact is the potential damage to European collaborations. The UK has been very successful as a collaborator in European research programmes. So things like the, the Horizon programme, the European mm. Research Council, which forms a part of that. So there's been a lot of uncertainty about uh, the, the nature of the UK's association with Horizon. And the kind of uncertainty has meant that the UK probably has been excluded a bit from some developing collaborations, hasn't had very much, inf well, hasn't had any influence in the development of the programme. Just to uncouple that, so you have a sort of immediate lacuna that yeah. has to do with the uncertainty of the last five years, where people weren't sure where things were heading and so would have been hesitant to start projects effectively with people based in the UK. Um, exactly. And, and then you have a more long-term thing. What is that more long-term tale of it? The more long-term issue really relates to, you know, just the sense of the UK as a welcoming place for gifted overseas people. The UK's science enterprise has been very international. You know, if you go to any British university, you'll find many professors and lecturers and researchers and students who come from all over the world, you know, including many from the rest of Europe. So mm. I think there's a sense that the UK is not a welcoming place anymore. It's been damaging to the morale of people, and, and that's important. I, I have to say that as an immigrant, the notion of opening borders 
to the the sort of very talented and very uniquely skilled and very highly paid. I think it's quite misconceived because there is a strong identity to a migrant that relates to other migrants. And I think the notion that we welcome you, but only if you are very special, instead of making one feel special, makes one feel quite exploited in a strange way. Um, because actually I want you to welcome me, but also possibly my brother or sister who wants to experience the UK for a couple of years while waiting tables. What do you think the cultural impact has been? And have you seen actually a lot of staff at universities going back to their uh, sort of originally their home countries? That's a very understandable position, Alex. And I think, you know, in science, there, there, uh, you know, there's a specific thing about the culture of science. I mean, I think there is a view amongst some in government, unfortunately, that, you know, science is all about superstars. It's all about Nobel Prize winners. But of course, it's not. Science is a very collective mm. endeavour with big teams of many people. So I think, you know, the emphasis on oh, yes, well, you know, we can get visas for the superstars, but nobody else is welcome is very unhelpful. I don't have figures to hand. I, you know, I, I know of cases anecdotally of, uh, of colleagues who've uh, decided to go back to mainland Europe, and I think probably all of us do. Leveling up, build back better, the green industrial revolution – can are they or can they become meaningful policies rather than sort of sound bites or catchphrases and are they competing policies or are they ultimately reconcilable with each other let me start with leveling up i think leveling up can be a real policy and actually i think it addresses a real issue that the uk has faced i mean it is unquestionably the case that the uk is regionally a very divided country in terms of its economic success so we have essentially london the southeast parts of east anglia are a very high performing northern european economy but most of the rest of the country uh, the midlands the north wales northern ireland are actually, in terms of their economic productivity, certainly worse than East Germany. They're kind of on a level with southern Italy, even Spain and Portugal. So uh, we've got an economy that has these two speeds. And I don't mm. think that's sustainable. The political turmoil that we've been over for uh, over the last few years actually reflects that, that those divisions in the country. So I think it's an enormously high priority, just both for the health of you know the politics of the UK that we do make the country more equal, and I think it's also vital for the economy. And I should also say, you know, I don't think this is a question of fairness in the sense of oh, it's unfair that people in the north have a miserable time because it's not actually like that. Actually, living standards in, in it, there's a lot of levelling up happens already, if you like, through the kind of transfer mm. of taxpayers' money. In a way, it's you know the situation is as unfair to people in London as it is to people in Newcastle, because essentially, you know, tax that's generated in London subsidizes yeah. to prop up 
less successful economies in the rest of the country. So I think if levelling up means anything, it should mean increasing the productivity of those parts of the country that are currently considerably lagging. Uh, And I think that is, I mean, it's a difficult agenda. It's a very serious agenda. And I really would hope that slogan is converted into something that, that is more substantial than just a slogan. The National Council of Science and Technologies to be chaired by the Prime Minister and the Advanced Research and Invention Agency also includes some political appointments. Is it conducive to long-term goals to have politics leading science in a way? Uh, Is it not inevitable that the short-termism of a fleeting administration, and this is not a reflection on this administration, this is any administration, has necessarily shorter-term goals that may clash with macro strategies? Yeah, I, mean, I think this is a, a, a real tension. And I, I think it is a problem. And it's one that I'm not even resolved in my own mind. I mean, I do think, you, you know, it is the role of a national democratically elected government to decide what the long term priorities of the country ought to be. And those long term priorities ought to be then translated into actual programs of action for science and technology. The target of net zero by 2050 is a great example. And, you know, I'm really glad that that's been set as a as a target. But a lot of work needs to be done to translate that target into action. And in Mm. a sense, you know, I think it's right that you would have a high level committee that crosses all of the departments in government that could, you know, crack the whip a bit and say, you've got to get on with this. Because, you know, governments are big and complicated things and they don't always, you know, different departments don't always see things in the same way. But, you know, it's absolutely right. The net zero is a great example of, a, a, of something that goes well beyond the business department. You know, it's got implications for housing, got implications for transport. It's got all kinds of implications. You know, that's a good example of, I think, why that kind of high level governmental steer on how technology should advance is, is important. I mean, the worry is that it becomes just a way of pumping money into constituencies that you hope to win, to be crude about it. That has nothing to do with the areas that you actually need to help or the areas that are doing well with innovation, because a political motive enters into every such calculation. No, absolutely. That's the danger. You know, the Americans have a word for this. It's pork barrel politics. Mm. It's quite a big feature of American science politics. You know, you often find some state has some research centre mysteriously springs up in the backyard of some powerful senator. It happens. If our politicians were far-sighted states people who could see the future and would, uh, you know, put aside short-term gains for the long-term benefit of the country, then we'd be in a good place. We've gone from Brexit's infamous people have had enough of experts to hanging on scientists every word during daily COVID conferences. Has the pandemic in a way restored the value of science and expertise after quite a traumatic referendum experience? I think it certainly made people understand the rapid, you know, particularly the vaccine programme. I mean, we have the UK vaccine programme with the Oxford vaccine, but also, you know, emphasising the um, the international nature of it. The, the BioNTech one is uh, done by Turkish immigrants to Germany. The Moderna one comes from the United States. We've really seen the international character of science and we've seen the fact that when it's backed by huge amounts of government money, 
bluntly, mm. it can work very quickly. And I think, you know, one has to, when one, it's quite a, quite a lesson to look at things like the Moderna, you know, how much money the US government pumped into Moderna to get that vaccine mm. out so quickly. These, you know, they're very large sums. We've seen a bit of a lesson in what science can do. I think we've also seen some of the uncertainties going back to March 2020. I don't think all, all the uh, advice that was given by scientists turned out to be right. So we've really seen that an unknown, you know, previously unknown pathogen that causes a world pandemic. There's a huge amount of uncertainty. And I hope mm. people have understood that science isn't a recipe for getting instant correct answers. It's a process for getting towards a better understanding. Do you think the pandemic will cause a more permanent shift or acceleration in Britain or, you know, more broadly in the EU and the US? towards the uh, a, a sort of life sciences economy? I don't think we know what the pandemic is going to do to society. You know, it's not over yet. I think it's premature to be doing that. Mm. I think life sciences, it's something that the government talks about as being a sector of strength for the UK, but it's a kind of slightly odd construct because when we talk about life sciences as a sector, we're partly talking about making pharmaceuticals, making drugs, often for export markets. You know, we've seen that, um, you know, vaccines in a way that the importance of vaccines was a surprise because vaccines have not been a very central part of the high value bit of pharmaceuticals. We've seen pharmaceutical companies moving away from vaccine development. Mm. So in a sense, what we've seen is the importance of bits of the pharmaceutical and biotech industry that maybe the market hasn't always pushed enough. I think, you know, antibiotics are another example of something, you know, a different kind of pandemic might have uh, made us realise that we'd neglected antibiotics. There's different emphases in the biomedical sciences, and we might reconsider some of those. Many of the failings, I think, of the UK in handling the pandemic wasn't so much about we weren't quick enough to find a vaccine or we weren't quick enough to find new drugs or repurpose old drugs like uh, dexamethasone but you know it did actually show up real shortcomings in the way that we organize the health system yeah the social care sector really was a bit of a disaster we're slowly coming to see the dimensions of that disaster that happened in the social care sector in a sense that's a different question it, it feels kind of less sciencey and less glamorous than making a new drug but you know how we organize the interface between acute care and uh, and chronic care and rehabilitation and social care you know we might have many more people than we'd like trying to recover from long covid and mm. that will make us think have we really understood rehabilitation enough? Maybe we're not actually very good at that kind of, you know, perhaps it seems unglamorous and less scientific than making a new drug, but helping people overcome disabilities and difficulties that they've got from long COVID. So I, as I say, these are all me speculating, and I think it would be wrong to say we know for certain what the life sciences sector will look like after COVID, but, you know, it will force us to rethink quite a lot of things, I think. And at the same time, this period of great churn throws up many issues around the use of biometrics, COVID passports, the, the sort of attaching of commercial value to health data. All of these things are rearing their head. Is there a sense that at times of great innovation stimulated by necessity, the ethics that must develop alongside uh, scientific progress can get steamrolled? 
Well, I think that can happen. It is interesting to talk about ethics. It's probably even more interesting to talk about trust because that, that's almost always what's at the root of these things. It's Do we have institutions that people trust? Trust is a very fragile commodity. And I think that governments maybe ought to think a little bit harder about how short-term actions cause long-term damage in terms of the erosion of that trust. And the UK, I think, is actually in a very good position compared to many countries in terms of the degree of trust that people have for biomedical innovation. And, you know, that's not an accident. I think people have thought about this very hard for quite a long time. You go back to things like the Human Fertilization and Embryo Authority, which really took a lot of sting out of some quite controversial issues. I think the UK has been quite good in generating trust around its biomedical enterprise. I think that actually shows up in quite high you know, willingness to be vaccinated. Mm, yes, absolutely. I think that that is a reflection of the fact that we have had an environment of quite high trust. And I think, you know, that's not a given. It can be eroded. And, well, I don't have to go in, you know, you can provide your own examples of places where the government perhaps has somewhat recklessly eroded that trust. Finally, I want to ask a, a sort of more general question. Do you think the innovation of, associated with a crisis can be emulated during non-crisis times? Because it seems to me that that must be the key to long-term success in science, to find that drive, that generosity of spirit, that unity of purpose that we have found during the pandemic, but to find it willingly rather than be forced into it? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think, you know, it, it does worry me. I, I worry about net zero. I think, that, you know, the need to get greenhouse gas emissions down to zero by 2050 is pressing. I think people underestimate how difficult that is as a target, what a wrenching period of adaption for the economy that's going to be, and how much innovation will be needed to do that in a way that's not too painful and will be politically acceptable. In a sense that the, the transition to net zero is kind of, a, it's on an awkward timescale because 10 years yeah. seems too long. You know, if there was a giant crisis that happened and we had two years to solve it, then society would adapt and throw everything at it. I just worry slightly that to get to net zero by 2050, oh, it just seems too far away. We need, but you yeah. know, the, the truth is... The, the it's a frog in a, in a pan of water effect, isn't it? That if it happens very, very slowly, you don't know when you need to jump out. That's right. And people, I think, also don't always understand how long it takes to bring new technologies to market. That you know, mm. the, 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 there is a failure to understand that things don't always happen that quickly. You have to put a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of people to work on problems. So, um, you know, I think all those things like you know, decarbonizing the transport system, you know, moving heavy industry onto hydrogen, doubling or tripling the, uh, the, the amount of low carbon energy uh, electricity that we produce, these are big, big challenges. Yeah. And uh, I, I worry that it all seems a little bit too distant at the moment. Professor Richard Jones, thank you for being so generous with your knowledge and in such a, with such simplicity. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the wisdom of British philosopher Mary Midgley, who saw complex thought as not an act of reading rationality into an irrational universe, but as the act of responding to a rationality with which the universe is already saturated. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>